We begin with this classic verse, Gospel of Mark chapter 1. In the morning, while it was still very dark, Jesus got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and he went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. There's probably no more famous example, famous passage of this example of Jesus practicing the discipline of a quiet time, or as I've called it, a time of surrender, a surrender time. But I was taught it was called a quiet time. The lesson's crystal clear. Rise up early in the morning and spend time with God in prayer and the scriptures each and every day. This single sentence near the beginning of Mark's cut and dry Get down to business gospel is made especially poignant then by what follows verse 35 with verses 36 in and the next couple after that. And then Simon, they found Jesus. Simon and his companions hunted him down. And when they found him, they said to him, everybody's searching for you. And Jesus answered, let's go on to the neighboring towns so that I may proclaim the message there also. That's what I came out to do. That's what I came out to do. The lesson's really straight ahead. If you want to know what you're supposed to do and where you're supposed to go, then you better spend time with God. That's why this passage is so critical. He answered, let's go on to the neighboring towns and we complain the message there also. For That's what I came to do. I've taught this for over 40 years. Many of you have taught it. We all nod in on it. This is what it's supposed to be. Spend time with God and you'll know what your life's supposed to be about. Without the discipline of prayer, one cannot call oneself a follower of Christ. Amen and amen. Without the discipline of prayer, sitting at the feet of Jesus, why in the world would you ever want to call yourself a Christian? Now, I was raised early on by a group called the Navigators, if you've ever heard of them. Navigators, my very, very first few years in Christian training was with the Navigators. It was started by a man back in the 1930s named Dawson Trotman. Now, for the Navigators, disciple was a verb, not a noun. It's not what you get called, it's what you do. Central to the Navs was scripture memorization and sharing one's faith. But the Navs' bread and butter was discipleship, not conversion. As a matter of fact, Dawson Trotman came upon this because he picked up this guy who was hitchhiking out in California where he lived. And he picked the guy up and he says the guy was angry and he was sour and he was cussing and he was all bent out of shape. And then Trotman realized he'd picked the same guy up a year earlier and had prayed the prayer with him. And he realized the man was not a disciple of Christ even though he had had conversion. And so Trotman changed his whole plan. And began to go towards the disciplines. All of Dawson Trotman's early followers were Navy men in California. They were sailors and they knew what discipline meant. They were steeped in discipline. Their whole life was nothing but discipline. There's a time to wake. There's a time to eat for how long you should eat. There's a time to to sleep. There's a time to drill. A time when to wake up again and do it all over. So he had a group of men who came in six months on leave and then six months months back out on the sea. And they were people of discipline. So that was pretty easy in some ways. 
But Trotman and the navigators understood while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. Discipline. Now, my first discipler was named Buddy. That was his name, Buddy. Not the elf or anything like that. His name was Buddy. Buddy was athletic, and he was disciplined. He had a master's in physical education. And he would call me, and we would go play tennis. And he was excellent at tennis, and I was not. I was 16 years years old, and I was ready for the challenge. And he taught me tennis, and then afterwards, we would go to Dunkin' Donuts, and I, I would eat, we'd eat donuts, and, and he would recite entire chapters of the Bible to me. He'd say, hey, test me. See if I got this right. So I'd open up the Bible, and then he would, he would, he would just recite from memory an entire chapter. And then he'd say, okay, it's your turn. And I'd recite a couple of passages. And he'd say, way to go, that's awesome. Then he'd say, okay, wait. And then he'd rip through another chapter in the New Testament. And I would go hang out with Buddy and his college and his post-college friends even when I was 16 years old. And we would worship for hours at night and pray for hours at night and share our lives at night and read scripture for hours until I had to be home at midnight. And everyone was excited and seriously devout, bordering on uptight, but they were the genuine article, and they were very sweet people. But man, they had discipline. I was all in at the time. We ate Mark chapter 1, verse 35 for breakfast, and by that I mean before breakfast. What was the goal of all this intense worship, study, and fellowship? Simply, two things. First, Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness, that is, to be like Christ, to be in Christ, like be like Mike, it's like be like Christ. And second, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those outside the faith. Two things, be like Christ and share the faith. Very simple, very straight ahead for navigators and all that kind of crowd back then. So soon, even when I was 16, I became involved in ministry myself. I began to volunteer with a high school ministry called Young Life. Young Life was not the Navigators. It was sort of the antithesis of Navigators. They were more interested in having a whole lot of fun, which I thought was a lot of fun. And they were slightly irreverent, which I thought was kind of fun too, especially after being around so many uptight people. And I began to work then with high schoolers. And just, I didn't really plan it or anything, but I tended to gravitate towards the artsy kids, sort of the kids on on, out of bounds. I began to gravitate towards the unpopular kids, And the kids who were not athletic and probably the only thing they memorized were words to songs. Matter of fact, they listened to The Cure and The Violent Femmes and Depeche Mode and Generation X, lead singer Billy Idols. Billy Idols. Billy Idol, that was who I was hanging out with. So let's just say that these kids were not going to impress Navigator Buddy. If I said the word uh, disciple to these kids, I believe they would have first thought of Charles Manson, not of Jesus. Now, all of us followers of Christ have this goal then of being in Christ. What does in Christ mean? Well, Paul uses the phrase in Christ over and over and over, and it is a technical term for him, and he rearranges it, and you can do an entire study just on the words in Christ, those two words, and it's a whole world of understanding Paul's theology. But you'll find it over and over, dozens of times in the New Testament letters by Paul, here, here you go, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, one of those classic verses that every Christian ought to have memorized. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new if you're in Christ. 
Then Galatians chapter 2. Here's a couple more. It is no longer I who live, Paul says, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2, again, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. To be in, in Christ, if you look at these verses, to be in Christ requires a death to self. So no one, so, so no one can say they did it on their own. One becomes alive inside of Christ. Now, we reach the limits of language here, which I'll get to. But in Christ is not about Christ being in you, but rather it is about us dissolving into Christ. And there is a difference to be within Christ. But we lack the proper language to convey this shift in identity. In Christ should be more something like inside of Christ. Our life is hidden within Christ. It is no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in us. Or as one theologian said it, God is not there for us, but we're there for God. God's not there for us. We are there for God. This is a fundamental difference. Now, this understanding of what it means to be in Christ has been flipped around in our modern obsession with the self. And I mean self with a capital S. Famous Catholic theologian Karl Rahner once said this. I must say it even more clearly today, Rahner says, that modern theologies turn to the world. And he's talking about theology here, not just culture. That modern theologies turn to the world too often fails to see that it all too quickly takes God as a stopgap for human beings. In other words, the God of the gaps. A stopgap for their happiness and their so-called self-realization. That is the greatest profanity and shamelessness toward God. He wrote this back in the 50s. Actually, it's a transcript of a, of a broadcast. And Rahner is saying already back then that self-realization and self-fulfillment and what we'd all these days call the, the authentic self was already beginning to see that it was going to chip away and erode the idea of what it means to be a Christian. And instead, it was going to become more of a self-help program with a little Jesus on the side. Rahner had little space for this put on Jesus, like adding some sort of Jesus to me, like sprinkles on a cupcake. This corresponds to what I was teaching about last week about the desert father and mothers who believe that Christian must die to their neighbor If they choose to be and want to be compassionate towards their neighbor. Nobody becomes compassionate toward their neighbor without dying to their neighbor. To die to Christ, to die to the neighbor. It requires a death. If a Christian wants to become compassionate, they don't just muster up some kindness and and goodwill. Willfulness does not get it done. If a Christian wants to become compassionate, you cannot use bootstrap religion to get it done. You must die to yourself. The practice of solitude and silence by the desert fathers and mothers was a death to self. So that it no longer, it was no longer them offering compassion, but rather it was offering Jesus 
to their neighbor. This is the transformation that Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This Romans passage of Paul has a couple of linguistic hurdles in it that are worth paying attention to just to get you there. If you, and these are probably fairly straight ahead, and they've been taught quite a bit. But the first linguistic hurdle that we come to is be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that word mind is, is different in our days of psychology and what we would call cognitive skills. Mind is not like our current day idea of just knowledge, of gnosis. The ancient world, did nev- they never split, and this is all around, by the way, in the ancient world around the ancient Near East and the Mediterranean. They had the idea where you, they had no concept of splitting knowledge from your conscience. They were one. In other words, they could not split the idea of heart and mind like we do today. It's how our culture thinks about it. But it's one of those things. Mind back then, for Paul, meant the entire person, the heart, the psyche, the soul, or the spirit, or whatever you want to call it. So it is transform one's entire self. But but he wouldn't have written self because he meant mind. We can see that if Paul had written self, how you and I would translate it probably as personhood, or even singularly transform you, which would not get the job done either. So we have a little bit of an inaccuracy issue going on here that, once again, language in 2,000 years makes it difficult to discern. And then the second linguistic hurdle is this. What is good and acceptable and perfect there in Romans chapter 12? What is good, acceptable, and perfect? Again, perfect does not mean free from error, as in that was perfect. That was a perfect cheesecake or something like that. That's not what he's talking about. It's often used to express then in an ancient Near East culture a idea of completeness, of what we might call wholeness, and a sense of, with a sense then of righteousness, or more accurately, of rightness. It is complete, and it is right. Moreover, it has a fine nuance of perfect leaning toward the idea of the end result. And just to go there into the whole Greek world, it's not too far to understand this, but to get to teleos, It is the teleos that it has a destination to it. Perfection, then, has direction to it as well. And if you want to go philosophical, it would be the telos of the thing. In other words, the end result of it. So, once again, language and time and scripture and so forth make it a little difficult to get the exact nuances of this thing. But it's important to understand it. It is the whole person, just to bring it to a short, short shrift. So to bring this together, to be in Christ, is a complete replacement of you with Jesus. This absolutely requires a death indeed. Now, I say all this because I am concerned that we have become comfortable with thinking that we can own Jesus, or that we can borrow a little Jesus, that we can tag on a little Jesus, that Jesus is my co-pilot, or Jesus is my buddy. No relationship to Navigator Buddy or Buddy the Elf or anything, but Jesus is my buddy. He's my bud. Chuck on the arm. Jesus is my lucky rabbit foot. Poor rabbit. It's an add-on Jesus. So you keep yourself as you are, and then you sprinkle on a little Jesus, and you're good. 
But there is no transformation in that. That's just simply add-on religion. And it's not what Christianity is. Karl Rahner, that German theologian, he saw it 60 years ago. That theology was in danger of having a stopgap. God was going to be a stopgap for personal happiness and self-realization. It was rather prophetic, and he called it profane. Jesus is not our little lapdog who comes running when we want him, and then we set him off our lap when we don't want him. Jesus Christ is Lord of all and in all. You can't have just a little Jesus. If Franciscan monk Richard Rohr speaks of a cosmic Christ these days, it is because Jesus permeates the universe, and that universe includes us, and we are not separate from it. it. So what shall we do? What does this require of us? Shall, Shall we will ourselves off the throne of our lives? Can you do it through willfulness? No. Shall we muster up the willpower to become super-Christians and extremely disciplined and perfect in every way and accomplish all of this hyper-spirituality? Well, it's not actually how you become a Christian becomes in Christ. Yes, discipline shape us. When you rise early and you read the scriptures and you journal prayers or you pray or whatever it is, you go for a walk early in the morning, a walking prayer or whatever it might be, there are many ways to get this sort of thing done. I spent many years doing that. These disciplines are no different than any other disciplines. Anybody who wishes to become a Christian without the disciplines is no different than somebody who wakes up in the morning and says, I think I'm going to run a marathon this afternoon. It's not going to happen. At least not the whole marathon. In addition to the time-tested practices of Scripture, prayer, and journaling, we pay attention then, just for an example, to our pace of life. An inward person under self-examination with scripture and prayer as a mirror to your life will look at your pace of life and tell you who you are easily enough is to look at your temperature in other words how is your anger how is your condition toward other people or just to get to the blunt of it how judgmental are you about somebody else Years ago, you know, um, authorities, Christian authorities and so forth, writers would say like, hey, you know what? You ought to operate at about 80% capacity. 80%. I don't know what they're exactly talking about. Well, I do. They're talking about anxiety and stress and so forth. Don't overload your schedule. Don't overload your life or anything like that. Just run about 80%. The problem is nobody knows what 80% is. You know what you know? You know 101%. That's exactly what you know because then you find yourself crying and you don't know why. Well, you know why because you did too much. Everybody gets 100%. Nobody gets 80%. So you have to leave a margin in your life. And that's extremely hard because margin says, I have room for productivity. And that becomes an idol. You know you're at 101% when you wake up in the morning and everything is just wrong. The coffee is wrong. The coffee's wrong. Terrible coffee. The coffee's bad. The internet is slow. It is slow. 
I don't know why it's so slow. Somebody must be blamed for the internet being slow. We sneer at the dog, and the dog now feels terrible about himself. He doesn't even know why he feels terrible, but the dog feels terrible. We sneer at the cat, and the cat sneers back because that's a cat's permanent expression. And the family gets the silent treatment, and everybody's walking on eggshells because you're at 101%. And at work, we just judge, judge, judge. Nobody can do anything right. What's wrong with these people? I can't believe they pay them. Why am I the only perfect person here? And then we judge ourselves because we've been judging others. Operating 88%. Here's how it gets done it is the habit of fleeing to the desert. It is the habit of fleeing to the desert. Without this pace of fleeing to the desert, without that discipline, we become compulsive like the rest of the world. As the ancient monks said, early in the morning, Jesus got up and went to the desert. And that's where they got that idea right out of Mark chapter 1. Now, here's the very practical desert all of us should embrace. And it's just simply silence. It is the desert of silence. You can flee to silence. Our words cause us to sin. We attempt to control our image to other people with our words. We engage in what's called image management. We worry about what other people think. But the soul that is in Christ only thinks about what Christ thinks of us. And the one who operates at 80% has the margin and the space to deal with the fact of whether or not somebody thinks something about them. We boast, we roast, we exaggerate and self-deprecate. We show up a little late for lunch and we blame it on the traffic. I did this years ago. I was doing this discipline for several years where I, I realized, you know, just, the, you know, my name is Dan and I'm a late person. So I used to think in my image management that I was only late, like, say, one out of 20 times. But the truth of the matter is I'm late all the time pretty much, and rarely am I actually on time. I'm not quite sure why. I think I'm just a sloth, but that's, I'll get off to that at some other point. Nonetheless... So I was practicing not making excuses when I was late. So I had opportunity. And I showed up for lunches and I would say, hey, sorry, I'm late. Now, what I was traditionally doing was like, because the traffic was bad or I was on this phone call, you know, or something like that. You know, I'd say, under script is, I'm not a bad person because I'm late. There's another reason why I'm a bad person. It's something exterior to me. Image management going on. So one time I showed up for lunch with a guy. I was late. <clears throat> I go, sorry, I'm late. We went on talking, you know, we're eating and so forth. And we got talking about disciplines. And I said, yeah, I'm not, I'm trying not to make excuses for why I'm late. And he goes, yeah, I noticed. And it wasn't exactly a positive comment because he was used that if you're late, you should justify yourself. And I didn't do it. And it was really weird. And I kept doing it. And I'm conscious of it now when I do try to justify myself and image, manage my image in front of other people. Just let it sit, man. You're late? You're late. Let them think what they want. Because you got margin. People that don't have margin make excuses because they're worried about what other people think of them. Maybe you're just a late person. Deal with it. Flee to Jesus. 
of course, there is another solution, it's be on time. Silence. Just keep quiet about your life. We don't call somebody back and attempt to control what others think of us and say, well, I was sick or out of town, and it could all be true. But that's not the issue. The issue is, is we're just totally concerned about what other people think of us. And deep down inside, we're insecure. And when you're at 101%, all of your insecurities are out there in a parade in front of other people. Noise allows the world and the demons to ignite the gasoline of our insecurities. And we live in a world where the television is just on because we don't like the silence. No one's watching. It's just on. The radio blares in the car because it's just on. The phone rings. Heck, even when we're in our silence, we're texting. We're so busy, not because we're truly busy, but because we don't like ourselves when we're not busy. And the world, oh, the world will love you when you're very, very busy. You can make a pile of money being very, very busy and losing all your margin. And that's all you'll be. You can have the entire world and lose your soul. And it's only attractive in one dimension, and that's productivity. But the dimension of Christ, no one will see. So in this season of Lent, as we head towards Easter, in between Good Friday and with the day that Jesus is crucified on the cross, and Easter morning, when Jesus rises and the tomb is empty, in between Good Friday and Easter, is this little-noticed day called Saturday, or more referred to in the church calendar as Holy Saturday. Holy Saturday is this day when Jesus lies silently in the tomb. Jesus is dead. And Christians traditionally do nothing on Holy Saturday. That's how it's supposed to be kept. It is the day of silence. I asked the church to observe this Holy Saturday this year as a discipline. After Good Friday service until Easter sunrise, go slow, be still, avoid the entertainment and the busyness, and just embrace the tomb. What we should ponder then on Holy Saturday is what if Jesus never rose? What if there never was a Jesus? What if, on, what if Easter morning never came? What would the world be like if there were no Jesus? What would it be like if there were no Jesus? What if he had never existed? Now, there are some out there that say, like, that's probably a good idea. Oh, but you don't want to go there. All of the good, good in the Western world has come as a result of one man, Jesus Christ. We would do well to ponder that on that holy Saturday. If you need to, get out a piece of paper and write a letter to God. What would it be like if there were no Jesus? Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Oh, you better rise up and read this with me. Yeah, this is good. Eugene Peterson's version of Matthew 11. Join me. Are you tired, worn out? burned out on religion, come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. 
I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you will learn to live freely and lightly. Amen.